Welcome to the Unspeakable Podcast. I'm your host, Megan Daum. My guest is Michael Shermer. He is a longtime figure in what is often called the new atheist movement, or the new rationalist movement. He has a new book out about conspiracy theories and why people believe them. But before I tell you more about him, a couple of announcements. The first is that if you are a paying subscriber to my new Substack page, first of all, thank you. And secondly, I'm happy to say that I am finally starting to post new writing on that page. It took me a minute to get that part going, but I have some new things up now and I'll be posting as often as I can. These are ruminations about my life, diary of an aging Gen Xer, something in that vein. So if you want to be the first to read what is essentially the first personal essay writing I've done in quite a while now, please become a paid subscriber at megandaum.substack.com. I will also tell you that the Unspeakable Podcast official Zoom Hangouts have resumed. We had one a few weeks ago, and it was great. These are going to take place monthly on Sunday evenings, beginning at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. This is reserved for founding members. I know that's a generous donor level, but no, this is a special thing. Uh, we get together. We discuss recent episodes of the podcast. I am always there. I moderate the discussion. The next one will be Sunday, November 6th at 8 p.m. Eastern. Uh, we usually go for um, at least an hour and a half, often two hours. So if you want to be part of that, join at the founding member level if you haven't already. And you can look out for posts from me about that. I send around the Zoom link, all that kind of thing. Okay. My guest, Michael Shermer, is the founding publisher of Skeptic Magazine. He's the host of the podcast, The Michael Shermer Show. And he's a presidential fellow at Chapman University, where he teaches Skepticism 101. I thought that's what this show was. For 18 years, he was a monthly columnist for Scientific American, and he now writes a weekly Substack column. Michael's the author of several books, including the brand new Conspiracy, Why the Rational Believe the Irrational. In this conversation, Michael and I cover a lot of ground, including what makes certain conspiracy theories take hold, what cognitive dissonance really means, why even military pilots can't be trusted when it comes to UFO sightings, and how he went from being a born-again Christian to a committed atheist. So here's our conversation. Michael Shermer, welcome to The Unspeakable. Hello. Nice to hear you. Thanks so much for being here. So we've got a lot of ground to cover here. Several of your interests and areas of expertise align with subjects we talk about a lot on this podcast. Mm -hmm. So in the interest of covering as much ground as possible without flailing around too much, I thought I would try to organize this conversation into maybe like three parts. So we're going to talk about your, your new book about conspiracy theories, uh, about your work with Skeptic Magazine, which you founded Back in 1992, that was the year I graduated from college. So <laughs> that was a really long time ago. Uh, the work on your Substack these days, and just your your thoughts more generally about the state of intellectual life in mm. North America and in mm. the West today, <laughs> because I think uh, that's something seems like we both 
think yeah. a lot about that these right. days. The culture um, wars. Yeah, and I hate even saying that. You know, I'm I'm tired of using the phrase culture wars. I'm tired of saying cancel culture. I'm tired of saying wokeness. But I don't know if there are any. Yeah, me too. But you got to use the language that is being used. I guess I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I reread <laughs> your book. Language is always and- evolving. Yeah, I mean, I reread your book, or I should say, I listened to it. I, uh, I like audiobooks. Oh. and I mean, you're in the teeth of the culture wars. So, so call them whatever you want. I guess <laughs> people so. are arguing in, into the ether, and yeah. uh, we're, we're part of that. Yeah, I suppose. All right, all right. Well, let's talk. Start with conspiracies. So, I did a Twitter poll yesterday. Um, in preparation for this interview about conspiracy theories. And I threw out four very common ones, at least as I saw them. And in so doing, I realized something that should have been obvious, which is that a conspiracy theory is not the same as a cover-up. Um, so like, for instance, if you were to ask me what conspiracy theory I'm most likely to believe in, I would have said the lab leak theory. Okay, like the COVID lab leak theory, emphasizing that I think it was an accident, but that's not a conspiracy. Uh, so can you just explain maybe what makes something a conspiracy? Yeah, I saw that um, yesterday and, and and clicked at some point in the late afternoon to see how the voting was going okay. <laughs> in, the, in the lab. Yeah, I haven't checked today. It uh, was well ahead of, okay. of the rest, which was, which was good because the others are in my mind, it pretty clearly false. The lab leak hypothesis is not technically a conspiracy in the traditional sense, although cover-up probably if that's what happens. That is to say, the the theory or the hypothesis is that the virus was accidentally leaked out of a lab. Yeah. And then the Chinese government being uh, what they are, are disinclined to share that kind of information. So call that a cover-up, if you will. It's not quite the same as a conspiracy, which I define or is defined by people who study this as, you know, two or more people plotting in secret uh, to Mm. gain an unfair, illegal, or immoral advantage over some other person or a third party or other organization without them knowing about it. So it's in secret, right? Okay. So you have conspiracy theories, which are the theories about conspiracies that happen. And the question is, uh, are, is the theory true or not? Or, you know, some probabilistic uh, you know, estimate of its, of its truth value. And since we know conspiracies do happen all the time, pretty regularly by corporations, governments, and individuals, um, then it's important to to try to figure out, well, how do you know? How can you tell? Right. And so a conspiracy has to be two people or more? Yeah, well, that's the idea, that that there's uh, you know some kind of coalition or a cabal against you or your company or your country or you know, whatever, whatever it is. If I'm doing something nefarious to you just to gain an unfair advantage, maybe I'm embezzling from your Substack <laughs> column. Oh, good luck with that. Yeah, that you could set the I'm bar a little higher. stealing away pennies on the dollar. Yes, exactly. <laughs> you know, that wouldn't be a conspiracy. That would just be, you know, embezzlement or something like that. Right. Um, and, you know, we do we know people do things like that. They lie. Um, they cheat. They, they do things like that. But that's not in the realm of conspiracy, which is, you know, a social phenomenon, right? So... One of my arguments is that we evolved a conspiratorial cognition because we're a social primate species in which coalitions of people do gather and in secret and plot to do things against other groups, against other members of the group. And, you know, that's pretty much normal. You know, if you study anthropologists' uh, accounts of hunter-gatherers, you know, that kind of stuff, social coalitions, 
of people trying to gain power and things like that do, do happen a lot. So there's a good reason to be at least, at least cautiously conspiratorial or, or rationally paranoid a little bit. Right. Although, you know, I love that I'm going to butcher this line, but it's never, never attribute to malice what should be contributed, what, what is caused by incompetence, right? Yeah, so people right. who have uh, very elaborate ideas about 9-11, for instance, I always want to say, well, nobody could have possibly been that organized. You know, <laughs> that's right. Exactly. Well, yeah, that's kind of the, the irony of the 9-11 truthers. They tend to be pretty critical of the Bush administration and thought of him at the time as something of a dunce. And yet he pulled off the greatest conspiracy of all time, right? <laughs> you know, right. plotting to to uh, have operatives plant explosive devices in the World Trade Center buildings, yeah. the two more secure buildings in the world. And, and holograms. Yeah, and, and holograms. rounded up and living and, yeah, on yeah. islands. And, yeah. Yes. And he somehow got everyone involved to sign an NDA because no one has ever spoken about this or no. come forward. Or, and human <laughs> beings are not at all inclined to spill the beans about anything. Right, that's right. Never. <laughs> no one yeah. in the history of the world has ever violated an NDA. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so the in my little Twitter poll here, this is the most basic of uh, of polls. So the the four conspiracy theories I threw out were JFK assassination, 9/11 being an inside job, the military shooting down flight 93 on 9/11. Now, let's get back to that in a second. And COVID lab leak hypothesis, which is not a conspiracy, but it we might think of right. as a cover up. So yeah, so the COVID lab leak by far got the most votes. So 76.5% of my respondents said that was the theory that they could see as true or possibly true. And then after that was JFK assassination. Right. So that one, because I have a chapter on that, JFK yeah. going away. I don't think there's any evidence of another shooter. The problem that the um, conspiracy theorists have is is pinpointing, well, who else was involved? And here you just go down the rabbit hole where there's no agreement amongst any of the literally thousands of people that think it was a conspiracy theory. Uh, like if you take someone like Oliver Stone, he said, well, the CIA was involved. Well, that, you know, that's a pretty big organization and they have done some nefarious things in the past, but who, who did it? You know, and, mm -hmm. well, somehow Alan Dulles was involved. You know, do you have any evidence for this? Like a paper trail, memos, letters, you know, uh, whistleblowers, anybody? No. Well, okay. <laughs> what do you do with that? Right. Whereas we have a massive amount of convergence of evidence that Lee Harvey Oswald did it. So if you're going to argue he did it and he was a patsy and there was somebody else involved, you, you got to have something like equivalent evidence. Well, who's the other person or persons where you can say, well, there was a kind of a, a, a grainy photo. And if you squint and use your imagination, you can see somebody behind the picket fence mm -hmm. on the grassy knoll. Well, you know, that's if you took this person to court, if you found somebody and took them to court, you know, they wouldn't even get past day one in the trial. The judge would just throw it out. You know, that's that's not evidence. And yeah. there is none for anybody else. There's absolutely no evidence that anybody else. is. So it, but it's not completely crazy because, as I show in that uh, in the rest the chapter after that, you know, assassinating foreign leaders uh, does happen. And the CIA was involved in that in the 50s and 60s and 70s you know, assassinating um, politicians who were not friendly to U.S. interests uh, versus some other dictator that we that were friendlier to us and we were more likely to back them. Mm -hmm. You know, we did a lot of that stuff. So it's not completely crazy to think that somebody might have done that. I mean, Lincoln was assassinated by a conspiracy and we found out about that within hours 
of you know who was involved and and what their plot was and so on. So, and there's some non-trivial percentage of European monarchs over the last 700 years who have been assassinated or power transfer in the form of a coup. So it's it's not crazy to think it could be uh, true. It's just probably not true because of the lack of evidence. Yeah, and this is your second book touching on this subject. You published a book in 1997 called Why People Believe Weird Things, and it seems almost quaint now. You couldn't <laughs> possibly imagine the the dimensions of the weird things people believe and and disseminate and the things that get amplified and go viral like between 1997 and today, it's a completely different sort of psychological landscape. What do you make of sort of the current state of conspiratorial thinking? Like, have our collective brains actually been sort of rewired to almost default to this kind of suspicion? Mm, I would say probably not so much that, because uh, conspiracy conspiracism has been with us since the beginning of the Republic, and you can go all the way back to the Roman Empire and far back as you want. You know, there have been cabals and conspiracies, and there have been conspiracy theories about what people think is going on. You know, if you look back in just American history, you know, it's that the Catholics are up to no good, or the Jews are doing this, or this group or that group. You know, that 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 was always around. It's just amplified by the internet and speed it up in real time. The analogy I make is, you know, following having followed the JFK conspiracy theorists for decades, you know, they used to meet in, in small little hotel conference rooms and have their little mimeograph newsletters that reach a couple hundred people at most and write these little self-published books that, you know, all, very few people read. And now, you know, you can reach millions, tens of millions overnight. Uh, and you, you know, like that loose change film about 9-11, that was the first vi uh, kind of viral documentary um, and, you know, it was viewed by tens of millions and maybe yeah. hundreds of millions by now. And, you know, Hollywood producers would love those kind of numbers. And, you know, it's free. Anybody could watch it and they could update it in real time uh, and and so on. And that's so that's what's new. You can get such a huge audience so quickly um, that it accelerates the effects of conspiracism in many you know, negative ways. Just re recall um, Steve Bannon on that podcast on January 5th. You know, saying, you guys got to be out there tomorrow. It is going to be epic. I mean, just shit is going to go down. You got to be there. Well, you know, so 10 million people get this, right? Or 100 million, whatever it is who, who, who listen to this. What would have he, he have done like 50 years ago, right? You know, you, you make a, some phone calls, maybe you try to get out a little newsletter. How, how would you rally people that quickly? And so that's what's new. Yeah. And it, early in your book, you, you cite some pretty amazing statistics about what people what people believe and this is taken from a, a volume called conspiracy theories and the people who believe them and for instance about a third of Americans believe that the birther conspiracy theory is true and that would be that Obama is a foreigner as a third of people believe that 9/11 was an inside job 10% of Americans think that the chemtrail conspiracy theory is either completely true or somewhat true. Another 30% think it's somewhat true. And that means that over 100 million Americans think that the government and airlines are conspiring to poison or drug U.S. citizens by spraying chemicals from airliners. Now, I didn't even know about that one. Mm, right. <laughs> that one's been around for a while. Okay. So let's just stop there for a second because it gets pretty, we're, we're not, then we get into shape shifting reptiles, fake moon landings, that kind of thing. So, like the chemtrail conspiracy theory, what's the origin of that? 
Yeah, that's that's a wild one. That one actually goes back to the 1950s. Do you remember the um, the film Doctor Strangelove or how I uh, yeah, learned <laughs> quit worrying and learned to uh, love the bomb? So there you have the you know the rogue general who's lost his mind and he's ranting about the precious bodily fluids that the communists are trying to drain us of. And that was actually a kind of a nod to fluoridation and the idea that uh, the government or at least state health departments were putting fluoride in water to prevent tooth decay. And then around the same time was the, uh, you know, contrails from high flying jets that people were seeing. And then you kind of got this whole thing, cultural thing of, you know, big pharma, big uh, industrial companies, big government agencies are somehow con- conspiring to poison us. Or because in the middle of all this was all the mind control stuff, the Manchurian candidate, all the stuff about um, the Russians and the North Koreans and the Chinese um, manipulating us with mind control. And so that was all kind of wrapped up into that, you know, because what's behind it is. Well, there's, you know, the the part of it is that uh, these industrial companies are dumping their waste on it. So that was one theory. So they get free, free kind of waste disposal or that that more nefariously that the CIA and or somebody was behind it for uh, population control or mind control. This was, you know, numbing us, making us stupid. Um, you know, which happened later when television became popular. <laughs> right. And uh, right. yeah. Anyway, so it's all part of that, you know, and, and it does touch on current events with, um, you know, uh, vaccine hesitancy. There's something about putting something in your body, you know, that's foreign and related to, you know, toxic waste or, you know, something uh, that you would normally be repulsed by. Although curiously, uh, I was just thinking about this the other day that why, why is there no antibiotic hesitancy? Why are there no antibiotic deniers? Like there are vaccine hesitancy and vaccine deniers. Hmm. And it's kind of a curious thing because you're, you, you, you are putting an artificial substance in your body. <laughs> uh, but for some reason, it, that one didn't catch on. Oh, that's so interesting. Maybe because people are already sick and then they take an antibiotic and they get better as opposed to something like a vaccine, which is just more abstract. It is more abstract. And also, because traditionally vaccines until the most recent one they based on rna you're really just injecting information to reprogram how your body responds to the virus but previously it was you're you're putting a, you know a little form of the actual you know toxic evil germ thing in your body right. Right. <laughs> i mean the analogy i was making was something like if somebody said well look megan we're going to take a tiny 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 little bit of feces from your body and put it back into your bloodstream and this is going to protect you I, I could do that on my own i mean i mean i guess there that. is some weird quirky health Fad uh, where people do something weird like that, but in any case, I don't even want to think oh, about sure. that. But but I think that triggers the natural repulse, the kind of disgust, the emotion of disgust that we have about bodily fluids and effluvia and just you know disease contagion carrying things like that that you don't you know vomit and and expectorate and so forth that people are repulsed by. That that's that's normal. That's good. Um, and then it gets grafted onto you know something like you know, the, the vaccine or the, or the contrails that are supposedly chemtrails and, and, and so on. And that, you know, so, or if, if you want to take it even further, you could say something like most genocides are committed against a people who have been associated with lice or rats or disease 
you know, they're coming over here. They're, you know, they're bringing mm. disease with us, you know, and that, that goes, you know, the Hutus and the Tutsis and the Jews. And, you know, it's just, uh, it's almost a uh, cliche that before a, a group of people are, are exterminated, the exterminators, the perpetrators make some kind of analogy with uh, bodily toxic threat to the, you know, the, the body politic is being threatened by this external, you know, back, you know, kind of bacteria. Yeah. Or, or virus. It's a virus of of these people. The book is not about conspiracy theories in and of themselves. It's about why people believe them. And you talk about things like cognitive dissonance. First of all, let's talk about cognitive dissonance. What does that mean exactly? Because it's certainly a term I throw around a lot. And I tend to just think of it as being like sort of trying to convince yourself of one thing when you deep down think something else. But maybe that's not right. Yes. Well, okay. So yeah, the best book on this is Carol Tavris's um, book, Mistakes Were Made But Not By Me, which um, kind of summarized the research of the last 50 years, well, more than that since, well, let's see, 68 years, because it's uh, Leon Fess, uh, Fessinger who coined the term when he, in 1954, the year I was born, went and visited a UFO cult in Illinois in which they predicted the end of the world was coming on December 21st, of course, the winter solstice. And the followers were going to go up to the top of the hill and the mothership was going to come rescue them just before, you know, catastrophe happened and the Midwest was, was flooded and everybody was going to be wiped out, but they would be rescued by the mothership. So he thought it would be interesting to see what happens when the end doesn't come, which of course it didn't. And, uh, you know, he thought, will they, will they admit that they were wrong? You know, will they just quietly go away and never mention it again? Well, in fact, they uh, most of the members doubled down on the belief. You know, they rationalized it away. Oh, we miscalculated. We've got to carry the one or whatever. It's next year. Or it was a test of our faith or, uh, you know, whatever the rationalization is. And But it, more than that, they, they kind of doubled down and went a- after recruitments. I mean, they kind of upped their recruitment uh, process for the com- for the rest of the year to get more members as, as if to kind of reinforce that they're not wrong. So he called this cognitive dissonance. That is, you're committed to a belief, you're confronted with contradictory evidence that shows you're wrong. So something's got to give. Either you change your mind and say, I was wrong, <laughs> or you rationalize away the evidence and go, no, no, that's not what it is at all. It's it's this other thing. And that's most what most of us do most of the time if it's an important belief. Now, if it's something you don't really care about, then, you know, you can say, well, I, what do I know? I, I don't care. I'll change my mind if you show me that I'm wrong. Uh, but if it's something that you define yourself by, it's really important. You've joined a group. It's a political party. It's a religion. You know, it's some ideology that uh, you define yourself as. It's next to impossible by uh, just showing people the contradictory evidence for people to change their mind. You have to do something else. So, you know, because it's a proxy, so I call this proxy conspiracism. It's a kind of a proxy belief that stands for something else. Like most people don't really understand climate science or the theory of evolution. Even people that accept the theory of evolution, when you ask them to explain it, they usually get it wrong. They have some Lamarckian version of the neck stretching. It's the giraffe stretching its neck, and then its offspring have longer necks. That's not it. Wait, That's wrong. what? That's wrong. <laughs> That's wrong. Right. But but people who accept it and still don't really know what it is. They're really just kind of tribally signaling, I accept science generally, they mostly get it right. So yeah, I guess I accept that evolution thing, or I accept climate uh, change is real, it's hum- probably human cause, everybody says so uh, in science, and I mostly trust science. 
But if you ask them, you know, you know, what's the evidence for it, they probably can't articulate it. So when we say believe, when they, when somebody says, I believe it, they're using that word in a different way than you might if you actually knew something about a subject. Mm-hmm. You know, there's studies on this, like people that say they're for NAFTA or against NAFTA. If you just ask them, what, what's in NAFTA, you know, in the North American Free Trade Agreement? Most people have no idea what it's what it even is. <laughs> they're just signaling like, well, I'm a Republican, so I'm against it or I'm for it or whatever. The latest is on that. I think they're mostly against it now. Yeah, anyway. I think NAFTA is out of style now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. But the point is, is that most of us don't know much about, you know, most things that we say we believe in, because how would you know? <laughs> that is true. <laughs> you know, who has time to read climate science papers. I mean, people send them to me. They're technical. I don't really understand them. Computer modeling. I don't even know how that works. Uh, Right. But, you know, my climate science friends, you know, in different institutions, they tell me, you know, here's the evidence. There's a lot of it. Okay. Well, you know, it's probably true. And it may be wrong, but probably not. Right. So that's kind of what, when we say belief, it's a different kind of belief. Okay. Okay. Because, you know, I think when a lot of us talk about being maybe becoming disenchanted with the left, those of us who always considered ourselves on the left or liberals over the last five or six years or so, there's been a lot of talk about just becoming disillusioned or disappointed with the kind of reductive nature of a lot of uh, logic on the left. We, we expect it of the right, right? So it's not like it doesn't exist on both sides. But for some reason, I think for a lot of liberals, we just always assumed that our, our side was too smart to, yes, to uh, the party of the get book. stuff. So exactly. <laughs> so the term cognitive dissonance comes up a lot in the context of like, oh, gosh, I used to believe everything that I heard on NPR. But now I'm starting to wonder. And therefore, I have cognitive dissonance. But it sounds like it's not really that. Uh, well, it could be. I mean, it's um, the question. It comes down to what do you do with the new information? Do you kind of update your priors and say, "Well, okay, I I might have been wrong about that. This is why I believe this, but now I see this new information." That would be kind of a Bayesian way of of thinking about things. Most people are not naturally Bayesian that way, and they they think more black and white. This say, is wait, what, what does Bayesian mean? Oh, so it's just kind of assigning a probability. Bayes' theorem, you assign a probability to a particular claim. Like, what's the likelihood of this claim being true? And you then kind of uh, search your, do a search engine of what you know in your brain about it and and think, well, let's see, here's my priors. That That is, this is what I formerly believed. Here, here's, some, here's some new information. What should I do with that? So the cognitive dissonance kicks in when, if it's, if it's an, uh, kind of an update of a prior that's really important to you. Like I've always accepted that Jesus died on the cross and was resurrected three days later. Okay. That's a pretty big one for Christians. You know, if you, like as I say, if you give Christians a choice between Jesus and Darwin, they're not picking Darwin. So you have to take religion off the table. You just, you can keep all that, but you should accept the theory of evolution because here's the evidence for it. But if you just say, here, there's a bunch of evidence for it, and by the way, you have to be an atheist to accept evolution, they're not going to accept it. So because the cognitive dissonance will kick in, they'll say, no, I can't. Well, I can't. <laughs> that's, that's not, that's not how, I, how I rock here. I, this is my belief. And, you know, so our climate science, you know, cl- climate deniers or skeptics, um, usually when you talk to them, you know, within a minute, they're talking about 
of socialism and free market capitalism. And it's like, how did we get onto that topic? We were talking about CO2 gases and the melting of glaciers because it's not about melting glaciers for a lot of people. It's about what the is going to be done by the government um, in in the name of climate uh, change that will hurt American uh, economy or capitalism or whatever. And that's really what concerns them. And is this because people just are unable to accept uncertainty to say, okay, we do have climate change is a problem and a lot of people are going to be affected by this adversely probably sooner than we anticipated. And also there isn't really much we can do about it. Is that just too hard for people to get their minds around? Yeah. The, the, cert- the lack of, the comfortableness with uncertainty is a huge factor in conspiracism as well as just kind of general cognition. It's just easier to think there are true and false answers to everything. It's a hundred percent this or it's zero percent that. And the problem is nothing is a hundred percent certain or zero percent. Nothing is absolutely true or false. And so um, it's hard to kind of adjust our thinking that way and say, well, you know, I'm 80% sure that Jesus died for my sins, right? I mean, no Christian's going to say that. You either believe it and you're in or not, for the most part, right? This is why you don't see, like, say, politicians. I'm a Republican or I'm a Democrat. I'm a good conservative. I'm a good liberal. And, you know, you, I mean, people rarely say, like, well, I'm 80% certain that the correct tax rate on the upper tax bracket is 38% and somebody else, well, I'm 90% certain it's 72% or whatever. No, it's just not how it works. You know, it's just I'm a conservative, so I believe in small government and lower taxes. And it's just kind of repeated as a mantra. And nobody, most people don't think particularly rational about it. They're not doing calculations on what's the truth about Political. So I think of political truths, religious truths as different from scientific or empirical truths in which we can assign some probability. So when you encounter something like COVID and during the pandemic, you know, what you saw in these nightly news is with Fauci and the CDC giving recommendations or the governor or the mayor standing up there saying, we got to close the restaurants, we got to open the restaurants, we got masks, no masks. You know, what, what we're seeing in real time there is just the uncertainty. I mean, just people, no one knew, you know, we're not omniscient. Nobody knows for sure. And it was a changing story and the virus itself is changing. So, uh, and what people want is, you know, well, what's the answer? And, you know, so I'm kind of sympathetic to politicians or somebody like Fauci. You you stick a mic in the face and they go, what should we do? And he has to have an answer. He can't say, well, I'm, you know, 55% confident that the virus is going to do this in the next three months. But I'm, you know, 80% not sure about uh, six months from now or 10, you know, a year from now. People don't want to hear that. They want to hear, should we open our restaurants or not? Yes or no? Yeah. So in just listening to you talk, I'm trying to think, is there a world in which the public could listen to a leader say, okay, well, we're 80% sure it's this, but there's a 20% chance it's that. Um, We're still trying to figure this out. Bear with us use your best judgment. Yeah, I would love that, right? But politicians are afraid to say that because then they'll be called flip-floppers or they're uncertain or we can't trust you. And, you know, because in politics, it's so tribal that, you know, you're you're in the tribe or you're out. I mean, you can't, there's not a lot of flexibility of, you know, you can be a conservative Republican and be pro-choice. It's like, no, 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 this is, <laughs> these are our, our central tenets of our team. And if you're not on board with all of them, then, you know, I don't know if I can trust you. And that's just not how the world really works. But, and it didn't used to be that way, Megan, right? I mean, we're both old enough to remember when, you know, it wasn't quite so 
divisive and tribal. I don't know that I remember it any other way. I mean, I'm a little, <laughs> I'm not quite as old as you are, but I mean, the earliest sort of political memories I have are like the, the Reagan administration, for mm. instance. And there was a lot, and, and actually this segues into what I wanted to talk about next was sort of your relationship to to Christian fundamentalism and and how much of your journey into atheism was a reaction to that time. Like, so in the 80s, th- that was the era of the moral majority and Jerry Falwell and, and evangelical Christians entering into the political s- sphere and really affecting Republican legislation. I mean, something like abortion, I think, was not really on the docket until the religious conservatives convinced maybe Reagan, that yeah. he needed that in order to succeed. Yeah. If I recall, wasn't there a meeting with Jerry Falwell and Reagan and basically Probably. saying, I can deliver you this many votes, but you got to be pro-life because Reagan was, he was, he wasn't a staunch pro-lifer at all. <laughs> I think when he was governor of California, he was pro-choice, if I yeah. recall. But in any case, for, you know, before that, um, abortion wasn't a big political hot potato for either party. And, uh, and in fact, for the most part, to address your more general question, you know, the, the religion of a president was mostly private. I mean, what was Eisenhower? What was Truman? What was Kennedy? Well, we know Kennedy was Catholic and that was a big deal because, you know, being Catholic was, uh, you know, considered almost conspiratorial. Like the Pope mm-hmm. is going to tell you what to do, or how to uh, run America. And he had to give that speech, which he, you know, I think it was at, at a group of religious leaders, you know, saying, I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to follow the Constitution, not not the Pope. And uh, but other than that, you know, George H.W. Bush, I think, was a Methodist. W was pretty religious, but because you know he kind of found God during his alcoholism days. Yeah, I think he was like in a 12 step way. Kind yeah, of religious. yeah, exactly. I think Laura told him, if you don't get your shit together, I'm taking the kids and leaving. Which is ironic because Laura was pretty, had some pretty liberal values. She was mm. a Democrat, was she not? I don't Before know. She Actually, that I don't know. I think she might have been. Yeah. Yeah, well. Yeah, so yeah, I, my concern at that time, it initially was about creationism being taught in public science classes. That was my first entree into it. Like, what is going on here? And then that led to, oh, I see what's going on here. It's a much broader approach, you know, that America is grounded in uh, Judeo-Christian values. That's what makes it great. And we need to introduce that. It's not enough to have it private in the privacy of your home and you raise your kids the way you want, but that, in fact, in the public square, the conversation should be directed in that in, in that way. We're seeing this now with Christian the, the re- resurrection of Christian nationalism, as it were, and uh, with Marjorie Taylor Greene. You know, she's been ranting on about this. Uh, you know, Americans Christian nation and so forth. And um, yeah, so that you know, really, yeah. So late eighties, early nineties, it really became um, important that you state publicly what your religious beliefs are. And and it was around that time that the kind of science and religion uh, debate, you know, kind of wars uh, really took off. It wasn't a big deal before. When I, I was a born again evangelical Christian for seven years in college, high school and college. And then I kind of quietly dropped it in the uh, 80s. But it wasn't a big deal at the time. Um, it didn't become a big deal until really the 90s. Um, a big deal it, like in the culture. Cultural, yeah, cultural yeah. war thing, right? You had to kind of publicly state your position on these things. Where do you stand? And, uh, you know, lots of books about it. And then, you know, in the 2000s, you know, you had 
Richard Dawkins book, The God Delusion, and, and, uh, and Christopher Hitchens, God is Not Great, Sam Harris, The End of Faith, um, and Dan Dennett, uh, his book was uh, Breaking the Spell, right? So these were, and there was a few others, and they were all bestsellers. And it was like, oh my God, you know, being an atheist is, this is a huge thing. And then atheism, the, the kind of first, the first split with atheism was how militant are you? You got to be really militant. You got to get in these. I know you got to make a religion of it. <laughs> exactly. You got to get in their face and make fun of them and challenge them and talk people out of their religion. And a lot of us were like, eh, I don't know if that's such a great strategy. Like the Bill Maher religious. <laughs> yes. I mean, I love that. I love yeah. that film, but you know, that most people watching that are not going to go, yeah, you know what? I think I'm not going to be. Christian anymore. <laughs> That's just not how it works, right? And then the next cut was atheism and humanism kind of went political, far left, progressive, woke, far left. And um, and so that also subdivided it even more. I mean, this is like in the political sphere. It's like libertarians getting you know fanatical about their beliefs. And it's like, you know, you have like less than 1% of the vote already, and now you want to kick people out because they're not libertarian enough. Mm -hmm. Maybe that's not the right strategy. And atheism, humanism kind of did that. You know, if you don't believe these 12 things of political positions on progressive woke issues, then you're out. Anyway, it's been kind of frustrating to be in that community to see that happen. Yeah. So I want to talk about how you ended up being a born again Christian in high school and it's and then and in college and then sort of going the other way. So my podcast partner on my other podcast, A Special Place in Hell, is someone you probably know, Sarah Hader. Oh, yeah. She became a prominent ex-Muslim. Right. And talks about being very, very pious um, uh, observer of Islam in, in high school as a teenager, and then in college, just totally whipping around the other way. And, you know, my the armchair psychologist in me says, hmm, well, you know, the way you're telling the story, it's like people, people want to get really, really into something. So first they're into the one thing, and then they define themselves in opposition to that thing, and then they're really, really into opposing it. So maybe we could sort of tease that out a little bit. What was going on for you personally with that? <laughs> yeah, you're there. You definitely like the ex-smoker that runs around and yells at people for smoking. <laughs> Yeah, there is some of that. Uh, I didn't really go through that phase so much um, because, again, when I this was in high school in 70, 1971 uh, through about 76, 77 or so, about seven, well, let me see, seven, about 77, 78 was when I kind of quietly gave up my religion. I became religious. My parents weren't particularly religious. They weren't religious at all, but they weren't secularists in any overt way. They weren't humanists or atheists or whatever. They were just nothing like most people. They're just working and raising kids. So um, I, I did it because my friends do it, right? So we know from uh, developmental psychology that the influence of peer groups in your early teen to late teen years is way more influential than the, than, than parental influence in home life. And that was the case for me. My friends were, this was kind of the early stages of the born again, evangelical, non- non-denominational, you know, it's just me and Jesus. <laughs> it's just, just read the Bible on your own. And there were, you know, prayer groups and these little kind of uh, collections of people with the guitar. This was the 70s, right? So, so this was like the Labrie crowd. Yeah. Right. right um, yeah. Right. Well, I had because I had John Ronson on uh, mm. fairly recently and we talked about the segment of his Things Fell Apart podcast about how the abortion, anti-abortion movement got started. And it really came from this guy at, at Labrie, which was this Christian kind of. Um, commune in Switzerland, like hippie Christians. And so I think maybe a lot of, if you're, if you're under a certain age, this whole concept might be 
completely confusing to you. Yeah, well, right. It was um, a lot of guitar playing and and uh, just kind of, so well, call it social capital, if you will, just hanging out with like-minded people. And the idea was that um, not to join a religion so much as, as kind of more of a direct line to God through the Bible. Just read it yourself. And that, that's what I was doing uh, with my friends. This little place called The Barn in La Crescenta, where I was uh, raised, um, had you know, like a weekly gathering of Christians. And, you know, you read some passages from the Bible, you talk about it, you sing some songs, kumbaya kind of stuff. But then I got serious about the doctrine itself. Like, what's the deal with the problem of evil? Why, why would an all-powerful God allow innocent people to suffer or free will and determinism or you know the the existence of god what are the evidence what's the proof for that what are the evidence for it how do we know and it turns out there's a huge field of this you know theology this is what theologians do they argue about these things and i like that so i went to pepperdine uh, in uh, which is a church of christ school it wasn't not particularly religious anymore uh, like it used to be when i went there but that's why i went i was gonna well i'm gonna be um, a major in theology and I want to be a college professor because when I was in college, I thought this is a great job. Wow. These people, they get paid to study and write and teach and they get summers off. <laughs> I mean, it's like, yep. what a job. And winters and springs sometimes off <laughs> yeah. as well. Yeah. yeah. You get a week off for Easter. You get two weeks off for Christmas. A whole year break. off every once in a while. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. It's like, what a job. They get paid for this. Okay. Uh, but, and, but what would I teach? Well, theology, right? Then I got to Pepperdine. I started taking classes in religion. And then they said, well, if you got to have a PhD, you got to uh, master Hebrew, Greek, Aramaic, and Latin, because this is these this is the language of the text that we study. I'm like, oh boy, I can barely get through Spanish. <laughs> so I thought, I, I don't know if I'm going to be able to do this. So I switched over to psychology and that took me down a different path toward um, empiricism and science and experiments and research and, and, and so forth. But that, that isn't really what took me away from religion so much as uh, just kind of in graduate school, taking courses in anthropology uh, and comparative world religions. And then I went through my Joseph Campbell phase of you know comparative world mythology. And it's like, you know, there's it's so geographically determined and so bound up in the particular culture you happen to have been born and raised in. What are the chances that I happen to get the right one? And all these other people that live before me or live in some other part of the oh, world. That kind of intellectual hum humility will get you nowhere. I know. Yes. It did. It got, well, it got me Admirable. somewhere. It got me to finally kind of give it all up. I did have, um, yeah, so I was kind of on my way out quietly. And and uh, I remember uh, my girlfriend had given me a, a little fish, Ichthu, you know, the Ichthu fish. You'd seen the Darwin fish with the little feet. Well, this is the, this, that was invented because of the Christian fish that had the little Greek letters in, inside Jesus Christ, Son of God, Savior. And I used to wear that. And I, I remember just quietly taking it off and just quit talking about it. I think my family was probably relieved because I was constantly um, witnessing to them. You know, Christians are supposed to witness that is go out and tell people about Jesus because you're going to save their soul and it's eternity is at stake. You know, if you really believe that, then that's what you do because that's the right thing to do, right? In your mind. I didn't know that's what witnessing referred to. Yeah, door to door. Really? I thought yeah. that was like, uh, so that's not proselytizing. Well, proselytizing, yeah. Well, Christians call it witnessing. It, it isn't technically just going door to door, it's just talking to anybody anywhere. I mean, I could say something to the person next to me in line at the supermarket, you know, well, you know, God be with you or Jesus loves you or, you know, remember John three sixteen. Oh, see, that does not go well. Does that ever go well? No, no, people don't like that. <laughs> and so, uh, yeah, 
yeah. I, I, and I didn't like doing it that much. It's just that, you know, that's what you're supposed to do. Right. I did. Uh, so the problem of evil always bothered me. I never heard any good explanations for this. You know, not not things like war because, like, well, humans have free will and we're born sinners. So, you know, people do bad things. But why innocent people? You know, why? Why childhood leukemia? You know, what's with that? Why would God allow that? I mean, there's no human bad choice. That fetus made a bad choice or the child or whatever. It's like that that, that, uh, that never sat well with me. And there's tons of books about this, but. Um, you know, why when bad things happen to good people, right? There's lots of rationalizations, but t- to me, to my mind, no good explanation. And my girlfriend in, in, in college um, was in a car accident. She was paralyzed for life. She's still paralyzed. I talked to her periodically. And, um, you know, it's like I'm it, 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 at, at some moment when she's in the in the uh, ER upside down, you know, just broken back and I'm you know, basically praying to God, you know, if there's anybody that deserves to be saved or fixed, or, I mean, it's this sweet woman who just doesn't deserve this, just this totally random car accident. And, and of course, nothing happened. And I didn't do it in a way like uh, it's a test for God to see if he'll respond. It's an experiment. No, it was just, I felt so bad for her. And, uh, and I just thought, well, what have I got to lose? I'm just going to get down on a knee here and pray for her. And that was kind of when nothing happened. It was just like, you know what? I just think random shit happens. Car accidents happen. It's, there's nobody behind it. There's nobody making it happen or letting it happen. Just shit happens. And that's the way it goes. And I kind of just dropped the whole thing after that. Wow. Is this a story that you tell a lot? The story I have. I, I, I wrote about it a little bit in The Believing Brain with her permission. Uh, I name her Maureen Hannon is her name. Uh, and uh, she ended up having, she's still alive. She still has a rich life. She was a, a wheelchair tennis player. She had a couple boys that are now grown men. And yeah, no, I mean, life goes on, but it just, it was terrible. I mean, just... Going to the uh, for like six months, she was in the hospital. You know, because you break your back, it's a huge, huge thing. Is she a quadriplegic or paraplegic? no uh, paraplegic? And was she very religious at the time? It sounds like well, it. she went to Pepperdine. This we were sweethearts at Pepperdine, and and she was kind of religious. Kind of, well, she, Catholic. Her she was the oldest of twelve children, re- born and raised in Alaska. Her her father was a, a salmon. Uh, fisher, well, fisherman, uh, cannery in in the Haines, Alaska, kind of on the Panhandle, and uh, yeah, so it was pretty wild to, get, to hear stories about the twelve kids. They're all uh, have classic names, like Ma- her name is Maureen, but you know Colleen and Patrick and Michael, and you know all the classic Catholic <laughs> names. And uh, that was a real eye opener to me to go see her family and and very religious in a Catholic way. Pepperdine was not Catholic; it was. Church of Christ. And she went of, from Alaska to Malibu. That's, yeah, that's quite that's a shift. Quite a <laughs> yeah. yeah, I was a member of the first graduating class of the Malibu campus in uh, 1976. That opened in 72. Um, it used to be down in L.A. And um, yeah, so I'm glad to see it's it's still thriving. I was on campus a few weeks ago giving a guest lecture for a friend who teaches there. And and uh, man, I'd love to to teach there again, but I I doubt that I'm not sure they would hire me now at this point. Yeah, well, life. we're gonna we're gonna get to that. But so I and I don't want me to dwell on the story with Maureen, but it's kind of remarkable. So the, you that was really this kind of catalyst when you went from being a believer to not only a non-believer but a sort of uh, you know very sort of pro non-believing, an anti-believer. 
um, entering the, the atheist world. Yeah, this is the last straw. Let's just put it that way. And again, I don't want to play it up like I gave God a test and he failed the test because he didn't cure my sweetheart, right? You know, because Christians will go, well, that's just the way it goes. I mean, God has a different plan for Maureen or whatever they would say. And uh, no, to me, it was just like, uh, I was already thinking, you know, maybe there's no God at all. And and then I felt so bad at you know, kind of do this little prayer thing. And then it's like, yeah, you know what? I just think just bad things happen. That's just the way it is. There's nobody in charge, right? Which is kind of scary. No, and that's why people like conspiracy theories, I think. Exactly, right. I mean, it, it might be scary to think that there's a cabal of 12 people called the Illuminati running the world and doing a pretty crappy job of it. Um, but worse than that is like, there's nobody in charge. Right. Nobody really understands the economy. How come the inflation? Oh, the Fed's got it all figured out. Really? Because <laughs> yeah. they, they don't seem to have it figured out yet this particular round. Uh, and, you know, the, it's kind of scary to think, you know, no one really understands you know, political systems, economic systems. It's kind of this complex, chaotic system in which there's these emergent properties that happen that can't be predicted. And, uh, you know, it's like, wow, okay, there's nobody in charge and there's nobody out there to save us. And I think that's it's natural to not be comfortable with that. And you have to kind of work at it like, okay, this is the way it is. And I don't know, there's a there's definitely a psychology behind the kind of anxiety or discomfort, the dissonance that that produces. Now a word from our sponsor, BetterHelp. Have you ever wondered why BetterHelp sponsors so many podcasts, especially the really smart ones like this? Maybe because we like to think about problems, the problems of the world, as well as our own personal problems. But it's easy to just analyze endlessly rather than taking steps to actually solve things. And when you're ready to take that step, a good therapist can really help. Now, if you listen to the show a lot, you've probably heard me talking about my own struggles these last couple of years. Struggles with creativity, with getting older, with losing my mind over do-it-yourself audio engineering. I could probably use some therapy. Some of my listeners have gently suggested as much. but. Honestly, I can't imagine fitting therapy into my life right now. And that's why BetterHelp is such an innovative and valuable tool. It's private counseling from licensed therapists that you connect with online. You fill out a brief survey and get matched with a therapist that you can meet with over video, on the phone, or even in an online chat. You don't even have to turn your camera on if you don't want to. It's all confidential. You can switch therapists at any time. And needless to say, it's much more affordable than regular therapy. When you want to become a better problem solver, therapy can get you there. Visit betterhelp.com unspeakable today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash unspeakable. And now back to the conversation. You started Skeptic Magazine in 1992. What was the climate, the intellectual climate like at that point? Mm, yeah. Okay. I'll give you a little bit of background on this. So I was a college professor at Occidental College in LA and uh, I just got my PhD and I was teaching and it's like, well, this is the gig. This is what I always wanted, <laughs> uh, be a college professor. Uh, but I, I was always interested in the margins of science. Again, creationism, why, you know, in, that was right after the Louisiana creationism case that went to the U.S. Supreme Court which voted uh, seven to two to overturn the Louisiana law that required the teaching of creation science in evolution classes or biology classes in high school. And uh, so that was, you know, I was always kind of following that. 
And there was kind of a, a nascent skeptical movement afoot that started in the late 70s when Uri Geller was all the rage. I mean, he's you know, cover of Time magazine and Newsweek, to, you know, lecture tours around the world, bending spoons with his mind and so on. And there's a group of magicians and scientists who people like uh, James Randi and Carl Sagan, Paul Kurtz, Ray Hyman, others that just said, you know what, this is not good for society to have all this kind of um, uh, new age nonsense being treated as if it's real. So they started in, I think, 76. And then I, I it was kind of fringely involved in that movement. But then in 92, um, I thought, well, just for fun in uh, my garage while I'm teaching during the day, I'll, I'll do, do this little side thing of having my own skeptic magazine. And so Pat Lindsay and I started this in 90, well, really 91, we kind of got together. There was a, a, a small uh, like local group, Southern California skeptics, and then they went belly up. And so I just kind of took it over and launched it as a national group. And I thought, well, you know, there's room for multiple <laughs> magazines, just like there are multiple science magazines, and there could be multiple skeptic magazines. And because uh, I always thought it was interesting that that people, not just whether the claims are true or not, you know, psychic reading or ESP or astrology or Bigfoot UFOs, whatever. But, you know, why do people believe them? Because, you know, that was my area in social science. So um, that kind of combined my interests. And, um, you know, we just started this in my garage and it just got bigger over the years. And it just really, I just took took over my life. That's my day job now, mostly. And I teach just one class just for fun to stay in the classroom. But mostly it's just Again, trying to trying to figure out which claims are probably true or probably not true, and and then, but then secondarily, why do people believe them? So that's always been my kind of career path, right? And and it's the Skeptic Foundation, right? Skeptic Society. Skeptic Society. Sorry. Yeah, so we're a nonprofit, five hundred one c three education organization, and this is a way of you know the magazine is and and the things like what we're doing now, uh, you know, it's communicating to the public. You know, there's a there's a source here for you. Like if you hear about uh, fire walking. I don't know. Just pick that. And I saw Tony Robbins doing a fire walk. You know, how do they do that? Okay. Well, we know how this is done, right? So we have an explanation for this. Whereas like most physicists, if you went to a physicist or an engineer or whatever, they're not going to know because they don't, why, why would they know about fire walking, right? It's just not part of their curriculum, but, but it is for us. Or, you know, how should, how should I think about these UAPs, you know, formerly UFOs? Well, this is in our wheelhouse. We've been dealing with this for 30 years. Here's how to think about these kind of claims. And so we have a kind of a toolkit of ways like the EQRI principle from Sagan, right? E extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. And let's apply that to different claims and see how that works. And, you know, there's a dozen different things like that, that, uh, that we provide to the media, the general public um, on any particular claim. So what was the Skeptic Society's relationship to uh, issues like the satanic preschool panic or the recovered memory syndrome. Yes. Well, the satanic panic happened in the 80s. We started in 92. So we're just kind of the tail end of that. We we did publish a few articles on that. And that early 90s, early to mid 90s was when some uh, books and scholars got involved in studying how in the world this panic swept across America. It started with the McMartin preschool case here in Southern California. Right. 
And uh, and then before you know it, you know, every city in America has a satanic cult until the FBI said, uh, we better look into this. And they couldn't find anything. Right. So it was a classic example of kind of a mass hysteria, which is also in our wheelhouse of things we study. So we publish some on that. But then we we witnessed in real time the recovered memory movement unfolding. And it was really disturbing to see, you know, these courtroom trials where these people are put away in jail, convicted based on this false idea that you can recover a memory like it's in like it's a recording in there and you just play it back. Play yeah. And for people who are not familiar with this, any listeners, that a lot of that was a lot of women in particular going to therapists that would unlock these memories that often had to do with the person being molested by her father or sexually assaulted in some way. And then those people would be fathers and family members went to jail for incest, molestation. And it was there was absolutely no basis in reality. Exactly. And part of the problem is that, you know, childhood molestation does happen. So you can't just dismiss all claims. So then the question is, again, back to the core tenets here, how how do you know what's true? What should we believe? You know, justified true belief as the definition of knowledge. What what should I believe? And in this, so everyone, every claim has a different kind of evidence and you have to look at them individually. You know, is it possible that people suppress memories? You know, memory is a it's a difficult thing to to study, right? And you know, there's been a lot of research since that the, that incident, the recovered memory movement, uh, led by particularly by Elizabeth Loftus at UC Irvine, showing how it's not at all like a recording that you play back on the and watch on the, the Cartesian theater of your mind. It's it's a constantly edited process. So when a therapist says to let's say a a, a woman in her mid to late twenties who is experiencing, say, depression or anxiety or sleep disorders or weight gain or loss or whatever it is, you know, do you think you were molested as a child? Because these, we know these are sometimes symptoms of, of that. No, no, I, I don't think so. No. Well, you know, there's research showing that people repress memories of traumatic events. Oh, really? Yeah. So it might've happened. Now, this doesn't happen overnight, right? We're talking months of therapy where the person then gets in their mind, huh, I wonder if this could be true. Now, tell me if you've had any dreams or fleeting thoughts or any kind of weird ideas that pop into your head. You know, those are all signs that you might have been molested. Oh, oh, okay. Let me think about this. You know, and then six months later, they got a full on uh, false memory. So this is called false memory syndrome. Right. They're not recovering anything. They're reconstructing. Yeah, that's a misnomer. Yeah. You know, Elizabeth, Elizabeth Loftus' famous experiment, Lost in a Mall, um, you know, here she's she has adult subjects who uh, she had interviewed their family and 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 presented to the subject a number of ev- events that happened in their childhood, one of which she just made up being lost in a mall and just asking the subject. Do you remember when you were a child? Your parents told told me about the time you were lost in a mall. Oh, my God. They just would go on and on in great detail. Oh, yeah. I heard my name. The guy that found me was wearing a flannel shirt. And then this happened and that happened. They just make it up on the spot. It's astonishing, <laughs> right? So this really affected the criminal justice system. You know, how do police conduct interrogations? You know, just asking somebody a question. You know, famously, she said, you know, she, she would show uh, subjects a video clip of you know, like a car accident or somebody walking in a park and, and, and grabs a woman's purse. It's all staged. And, you know, what color was the guy's hat? Oh, it was a green hat. It was a knit hat. It was a baseball cap. He wore it sideways. There was no hat at all. Right. <laughs> and just asking uh-huh. the question. Right. So, yeah, that's that was a real 
eye opener for the study of memory. And that, that changed everything in the nineties and then continuing, you know, into the two thousands of, you know, how these things unfold, these social events. Yeah. I mean, you can really see how false confessions happen. Very right. Yeah, exactly. Why would anybody confess to something they didn't do? Well, so again, back to what do people really believe? You know, maybe somebody isn't quite sure. And, you know, somebody said, well, you know, we have your fingerprints and, you know, two eyewitnesses. Huh, maybe I did do it. Maybe I blacked out or, you know, I was drunk or I just don't remember. You know, people convince themselves just by repeating things like that. So, like, you know, eyewitness testimony is not reliable. You know, so when people, well, I saw this UFO, it was, you know, 70 feet long and it was going at 350 miles an hour is 2.5 miles away. How do you know any of this? <laughs> right? I mean, it's not possible. People are that specific? <laughs> a lot of them are. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Or, or they'll give some general thing like, oh, I think it was, I don't know, like uh, 100 miles away or it was going 100 miles an hour. And then somebody tr- converts that into, into miles per hour. It is 62.7 miles. <laughs> I forget mm. what it is anyway. <laughs> it's like, oh, it's that, that specific, right? And it's not possible to make those kind of judgments. Well, it was a pilot, you know, as if pilots have different sensory yeah. apparatus than well, the Well, they're of supposed this. to be screened for mental stability, right? Especially yeah, or whatever. Or it was the pilot. sheriff, or it was the mayor. Yeah. You know, yeah. The, the stories always um, uh, escalate up to the most prominent person, like quotes, right? <laughs> quotes always go, migrate up to, you know, Einstein or oh, to Winston Mark Churchill. Twain. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> most famous person who ever said it or didn't say it. Right. And, do you know anything about the psychology of this? Is, the, is this in your wheelhouse? Like, what is it about the brain that allows us to do this? Do we, do we sort of so badly want to feel like situations are familiar? Or is it some kind of just attempt to ground yourself to some kind of experience? Yeah, in part, I think, yeah, we do know quite a bit about that. Like, for example, um, you can show subjects a, a magic trick, you know, magician just does something. And they will retell the story. Well, tell me what you saw. And they'll say it in a way that that it, it didn't happen that way, but they repeat it in a way that the magician could not have done a trick. You know, like, and, and Randy used to make this point where people would say, you know, Uri Geller bent my key and he never touched it. But if in every time it's been videotaped, he does touch it, right? So they're misremembering or, you know, they're recounting it in a way that can't be easily explained like, oh, well, it was just a trick and I got fooled, uh, you know, and there's, there's this kind of effort to make it impossible for a skeptic to say, well, here's what actually probably happened. You know, he, he palmed the key and when you weren't looking or he adjusted his seat and he bent it when he was adjusting his seat one of the ways that Uri Geller would do this. And uh, I remember being on a, uh, one of these uh, lecture cruises. We were going to the Bermuda Triangle <laughs> for mm. a Scientific American cruise. And it was a couple hundred people. And, and, um, and most people were pretty skeptical. So I remember having dinner uh, at one of the you know, group tables and guys going, oh, yeah, I'm a skeptic too. But you know, I saw this guy bend a spoon. Now, I, I know about the Uri Geller thing and the way they normally bend it. But this was bent in a way that could not have. The, the bowl of the spoon was twisted left, right, not down, up and down. So as he's telling me the story, I quietly take the spoon from the table and, and, and put it on my lap. And I did what you would do to make it come out this way, which is a simple, very simple move. And uh, and then I brought it up to the table. And when he finished the story, I said, did it look anything like this? And he's like, oh, crap. <laughs> he, he goes, really? It's just a trick? I go, yeah. 
Oh, how'd you do uh, it? Go, even on the skeptic you. cruise. Yeah. How come nobody talks about the Bermuda Triangle anymore? That was huge in the 70s. That and quicksand were the two big things people were afraid of in the 70s. Yes, exactly. Quicksand, yes. <laughs> Where does that happen? <laughs> you know. Uh, well, the Bermuda Triangle that was pretty popular because of Charles Berlitz, um, the language book producer, uh, the pub- publisher. He got into publishing books about fringe ideas. He did one on Roswell and the Bermuda Triangle and Bigfoot and on and on because those were those sold better than language books. And uh, so a lot of that uh, took off then – Documentaries were being, you know, popular shows like In Search of, starring Leonard Nimoy, was huge. And uh, well, what happened to it was, uh, well, basically, uh, you know, skeptics debunked them. Uh, why? But why does it did it not continue? I don't know. You know, I think these things kind of go in and out of popularity depending on what's going on in pop culture. I mean, Exorcism was big for a while after yeah. the Exorcist, then it kind of disappeared. Then it comes, it comes back periodically when some. Um, you know, super fringe evangelical or or one of these other kind of charismatic churches um, gets on some TV show and, you know, uh, exercises a demon and, and it comes back or like the UAP. The UFOs were quiet for a few years and then they came roaring back with the UAP story. <laughs> you know, so these things, the evidence doesn't change. There, there is no evidence. It's just really, uh, you, know. you don't think uh, there's... I- there's some pretty convincing people who insist that they've seen UFOs. Oh, I know. <laughs> I know. I've met them. Um, well, okay. So let, let's think about this for a second. It, what did they see? Okay. I'm not saying they're hallucinating uh, and that they didn't see anything, but it, it's like these, um, uh, the, the, remember the dress, you know, the dress, is it gold and yellow? Oh, it gold yes. And white the red or, blue or the, the blue yeah. or the yellow. And yeah. it only ever looked, I can't remember which, but I never saw it any way but one way. Right. So this is an example of, you know, the way a photograph is presented where the information is slightly degraded and you can't quite make out what's going on. And the mind kind of fills in the gap. This applies to a lot of things. I mean, optical illusions, for sure, are tricking us just in the same way that magicians can trick us because they know how our sensory apparatus works, they know how our cognition works, and then they can mani- manipulate that. So when somebody sees something, like a pilot saw something, okay, and I'm I'm sure they saw something. I'm, I'm not saying it's completely made up, but you know, is it a flock of geese? Is it a weather balloon? Is it uh, you know swamp gas or you know some some atmospheric phenomenon? And you know, the tendency for most observers is not to, to go with the mundane, uh, boring explanation, which is most likely what it is. You know, this is called base rate neglect, right? Uh, so the, the little quip is if you hear hoofprints outside your, your door, think horse, not zebra. You oh, know, I thought you were going to say reindeer, but okay. <laughs> yes, I'll get Once that too. <laughs> yeah, think horse, not reindeer. Okay. Uh, you know, may, maybe if you lived in Lapland or wherever it is, those reindeer hang out, you'd think reindeer. But anywhere else, you should think horse, right? So, you know, we have a number I like to quote is from pro-UFologists, the serious ones that write books about this. And they they themselves say 95% of all sightings are fully explicable by natural means. It's the other 5% we can't explain. And then you weave a whole new worldview of being visited by aliens or these are Russian drones or Chinese mm. uh, drones spying on us or whatever they think the UAPs are. But what are the chances that that you know, ninety-five percent are natural, and the other five percent of the unknown are this other weird thing, or we just can't explain everything. So it's another one of these skeptical principles: you can't explain everything. No theory explains all every single anomaly. Every scientific theory ever 
uh, has some anomalies in nature that it can't explain, right? This is how we ended up with general relativity. You know, Newtonian physics didn't explain some of these weird things. Okay. So what do you do with that? Nothing. You don't have to do anything. Just it, just be comfortable with the unknown. I think the thing with the UFOs is that it seems presumptuous to think that we're totally alone and that they've never visited us. Okay, here, yeah, this is a very good point. Uh, but I separate <laughs> questions. Are they out there? Have they come here? And it, it would be pretty presumptuous and egocentric to think, you know, of the you know, hundreds of billions, maybe trillions of galaxies, and every one of them has hundreds of billions of stars, and pretty much all those stars have planets. You know, what are the chances we're the only ones? And Sagan was making this point back in the 70s. You know, it'd be an awful waste of space out there if we're the only ones. It's possible, but seems unlikely if if you make the argument it's purely natural and that natural laws lead inevitably to some kind of complex of systems where molecules combine into protein chains, and you end up with these crude cells. And it doesn't matter how unlikely it is that you'd get from bacteria to big brains. If you have enough, if the background rate is, you know, the possibilities is so high, law of large numbers, you know, a million to one odds happen, you know, several times, you know, 300 times a day in America, right? I mean, there's 300 million American adults and, you know, okay, you just have enough stuff going on, really, really unusual things will happen. So that's the argument for SETI and why it's worth searching. But that's a different claim a different community of people, a different kind of worldview than those who think we've already been visited. They tend not to be scientists. They tend not to have much background in, you know, physics and biology and how all that stuff works. They're not listening for signals. They're, you know, they're convinced we've already been visited. It's already happened. Mm -hmm. And, and then, okay, what's the evidence for that? And then you get the grainy videos, the blurry photographs, you know, if you squint and use your imagination, you can kind of sort of kind of see this thing right there. And it's like, I'm sorry, that's just, you know, in biology, if you want to name a new species, you have to have a type specimen. Here it is. You know, you bring it to the conference. Here's my photographs of it. It's at the museum. It was dissected, published in a peer reviewed journal. There's no question about it. You know, like the mountain gorilla was discovered in 1903. Here it is. It's in the zoo. You can go look at it yourself. There's nothing like that with UFOs. Nothing else we have are stories. And again, grainy videos, blurry photographs. And, uh, you know, the, if you look at all of the UAP videos online, they're everywhere. They're all the same. They're all kind of grainy, blurry, can't quite make it out. What's going on there? I'm not sure. The pilot said he saw this. He's Yeah. What the about the, the Tic Tac or that whole thing? Yeah. The yeah. Pilots right. up there. The Tic Tac. Yeah. Well, you see these pictures of the Tic Tac. They're all computer generated of what the, the pilot says he saw, there's no images, there's no actual video recordings of that little tic tac. It's, it's really blurry. It's really hard to see what it is exactly. And there's all these, well, it, it, it's like there's one video where you see the little object, it's kind of blurry in the middle of the screen, and the pilot has targeted his camera on it. You see the little crosshairs on it. Then all of a sudden, the thing like zooms left. Right. Really fast. And they go, oh, my God, this thing was uh, it, it must be able to travel thousands of miles an hour. It can turn left on a dime. This would kill a pilot because the inertial force. <laughs> or it's on. the latest Tesla, maybe. It's like, it's right. Self-driving Tesla. Yeah. Elon has figured it out. <laughs> Incredible handling. <laughs> right. But but if you look at the video up on the upper left, uh, there's a little uh, tag called Zoom. And the moment that this object zooms to the left, the pilot went from one to two. He doubled the zoom in on the object he was filming. That's it. That's all it is. It was a zoom. 
Oh. Uh, the object didn't do anything. It just, it, the just pilot just zoomed in on it. So it looked like it moved left, but in fact, it was just moving closer because you could see the object itself double in size. What? But the, they were so, they were so exuberant. There was just something about listening to their voices. It's something thrilling just to hear somebody being so excited in real time. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Oh man, did you see that? Yeah. Yeah. yeah of course that gets your attention. And again, I'm not saying they didn't see anything, but but what is it that they saw? Now, so the non-extraterrestrial hypothesis is that it's Chinese or Russian assets. These are drones. We're being spied on. They're hovering over our military bases oh. and our nuclear Yeah, I don't um, like that one. I, I, I would rather it be actual aliens. Well, <laughs> I guess that would be more interesting. Well, one of the arguments I've been making in the last eight months is because if the Russians really had technology like that, wouldn't we see it in Ukraine now? Right. Yeah. But there's nothing like that. Nothing. And um, but also, you know, the idea that some somewhere somebody developed like an anti-gravity technology and no one else knows about it. That never happens in the history of, of science and technology. No ideas ever, ever. Not once any of them come out of nowhere. Everybody that works in it kind of knows what's going on. It's like the Wright brothers, but you know, there were a bunch of other people working on it. And the, you know, the moment they did it, other people did it. The light bulb, the search engine. You know, these are all, you know, they're just hovering in the culture, ready to go. And then somebody gets there first, the telephone, right? Famously, you know, beat, uh, uh, what's his name? Beat, beat the other guy by an hour to the patent office, right? You know, the, 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 even the Manhattan Project, you know, the most secret technological project ever. Uh, the Russians had it within three years, right? Because they had a spy. They, they stole their information. This is how it normally works. So the idea that the Russians or Chinese have made some kind of anti-gravity, you know, flying saucer kind of thing, uh, the tic-tac, they can zoom around with a pilot in it at tens of thousands of miles an hour and turn left. Impossible. We would know about this for sure. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, I want to make sure before we wrap up, I want to make sure we cover something that's, you know, very much a big part of your career, which is Scientific American. And I realize I misspoke a little while back. The The cruise where you were bending the spoon, that was a Scientific American cruise, not a, yes, correct, not a right, skeptic. Yeah. Okay. You, the skeptic Society does, does not yet have its own cruises. But <laughs> well, always, we, yeah. Well, we, we have done a few, but uh, yes. Yeah. Something to aspire to. So you wrote for Scientific American for uh, many, many years. 18 like years. A, yeah, 18 just shy years. of 18 years, yeah. And you recently left, and there's a little bit of a story there. Do you want to tell us what happened and, and just sort of what you make of the state of scientific journalism today? Yeah, I think uh, what happened to me is just kind of emblematic of the larger issue. I mean, they never fired me and they just said, well, you know, next month is your last column that without much of an explanation other than, well, it's time for a change. Well, that's firing. That's, <laughs> that's very, that's, I guess so. Okay. No, it's, yeah, I, like I mean, I'm as, it was a con, you know, yearly contract labor. I wasn't an official okay, employee. Yes. Um, but, uh, but the sense I had was that the shift is coming. I could see it, you know, kind of that, the, the younger editors were more liberal, left, progressive, woke, whatever words you want to use. I don't like that, those words either. But, um, the, you know, I could see it coming just in the way articles, my articles, were columns were being edited, objections to things that I would say normally that just seemed objectionable to them. And then I could see in other articles, and especially since um, my last column, uh, you know, they've been publishing these articles 
like, you know, the misogyny and mathematics, academic mathematicians are all a bunch of misogynist people. Well, this, you know, it, it's not true. <laughs> you know, what's the evidence for this? No, well, be- and we've talked about that a lot on this show. So that's, I mean, that to me seems like almost a banal point at this point. We know that there's not a conspiracy, a patriarchal conspiracy to keep women out of STEM. If anything, there've been countless initiatives. Yeah. And, and there's right. been lots of good faith, well-argued, conversations about why there's a pipeline problem, even if it's, nice. it's not even a really a problem, but, and right. yet you were not able to, to, to get this past an editor, an editing desk. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, that was, you know, my, my first Substack column was on that, you know, what, what has happened over yeah. there. And, you know, it's not just me, it's not just that one example, but, you know, lots uh, of, you know, articles since, since, you know, I left where they kind of pushed that more and more since the Me Too movement and the, especially the BLM movement. Um, you know, I, the best explanation I have is that, you know, they want to make a difference. They feel like something's wrong in our culture. What can we do? We're just, you know, scientific American. We publish scientific articles. What can we do? Well, we can nudge the articles in the direction of Kind of promoting these, you know, this kind of narrative that, you know, there's a serious problem in America with race and gender and so forth, and you know, we got to do something about it, and we're doing our little share. I, I think, you know, if, if giving p- people good intentions, that's probably their intention. I think they, they actually believe that, you know, America's, you know, gone to hell in a handbasket. We're just hopelessly misogynistic and mm, racist, yes. and we need to change, and we're all going to you know, do some do our share. I mean, you see this in all these training programs that everybody has to do now in corporations and the DEI trainings. Yeah, yeah, I, I have to do it every year. These are the lamest things I've ever seen. I just <laughs> it's so dumb. You have to do it even as a contract, right? Yes. Oh, yeah, yeah. Because I'm a, a an adjunct presidential fellow chairman, so I have to oh, do it. Everybody. Oh, there, yes. Yeah. You have everybody to do it has to do it. Everybody. Right. I mean, all the administrators, staff, everybody. And, you know, the, the, of course, the problem is, I'm sure you've talked about this on your show, is that you know, most of the people, 99% of the people taking it don't need that. They're already pretty liberal, tolerant, open, right? And the people who, if, you know, the, the 0.01% racist assholes that are still out there, you know, they're just laughing at these ridiculous training programs. They're, it doesn't change their mind, right? Oh, I see. I shouldn't, shouldn't be racist anymore. Okay. I didn't realize that. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I... We cover this a lot on the show, and I, I don't want to spend too much time on this, but I am curious, where do you think this is coming from beyond just, we want to contribute, we want to be on the right side of history? Like, is it that the people who are going into jobs like being on the editorial staff of Scientific American are just sort of predisposed to this kind of thinking? They went into these jobs because they already come from pretty pretty insulated world uh if you're a working class person you're probably not gonna go to a liberal arts college and be an english major and then go work for a magazine Mm. the people who do that they just tend to be a certain personality type really could be a self-selection process Is, is that what you're getting at i think probably there's something to that yeah um but again it's like the larger kind of cognition here of confirmation bias, motivated reasoning, you know, I believe X. Now, is there evidence for that? Sure. You know, there's the occasional, you know, police videos like the one from news this last day, yesterday, I guess, that a rookie cop shot that kid eating a burger at a McDonald's, you know, just 
because he thought the car looked like the car that that uh, that, that 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 he chased away or that, that escaped the other day, and he just made a mistake. So if you have the narrative that this is what's happening, you can find examples because there's just so many out there of these things. You get uh, so that, like these Scientific American articles say, well, there was this math professor who pinched somebody, some woman's butt, or made some snarky remark to a, a female math student or whatever. I'm sure you can find examples of that. But, you know, the, the question is, what's the base rate? Well, I know. And every time somebody cites an exception, it's like, well, the fact that it occurred to you means that it is an exception. All you've done is is prove my point. Like, exactly. This right. is at the you know, tip of your tongue. Oh, there's this one outlier case. And I'm going to bring this in as an example of why you're wrong. It's like, no, actually, that's why I'm right. So. Right. So, okay. I was just kind of going through some of my old substacks here. There was that the other one that the uh, the Scientific American published an article about the Star Wars. The the lightsaber is is kind of phallic. I mean, you got to oh, really. Oh, everybody's that's been going on forever. <laughs> I mean, yeah. if that's if you consider that a reasonable argument, it's like okay. Yeah, well, that's just like if you read uh, the Fountainhead. You know, it's all all skyscrapers are phallic as well. So. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. So how are you feeling about your professional life these days? You're doing Substack like everyone else. Uh, <laughs> yes, you're on your own. Did you ever think you would be at this at this age, at this point of your career, and uh, the hustle never ends? Oh, interesting. Well, um, I don't know, Megan. I just, I'm just trying to keep up, <laughs> you know, with the kids these <laughs> days. What are the kids doing? <laughs> don't, don't even bother. And I'm one of those guys that, you know, I could, if I have to give my username password one more time, I'm going to Oh my scream. God. And I always blame myself. I just think this is just my own incompetence here. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I tend to think it, it is probably me because when I have my, my younger staff, so here, let me set it up for you. Oh, okay. I'm an idiot. <laughs> well, I don't know. I'm just, uh, you know, kind of the same mission. We just want to get our message out there that there are ways to think about uh, all these kinds of claims and not just the fringe stuff that we've dealt with, but, you know, you mentioned recovered memory or, or, you know, vaccine hesitancy, climate denial. I mean, th these are you know, conspiracies. I mean, this is not fringe. It's mainstream. You know, it, it's, it's right up there in the, the core of our democracy. You know, if yeah. you don't believe that elections are fair, well, then what's the point of having democracy? It's over. Right. So right. it very much matters what's actually true. And the fringy stuff, JFK or UFOs, or whatever. I mean, it's kind of fun and entertaining, but but it's um it's kind of a proxy or it's a canary in the coal mine for what else people are willing to believe. Because we know from studies that people that tick the box for one conspiracy theory tend to tick the box for most others. They they're kind of a conspiratorial mindset, even to the point of contradicting themselves. Like people that tick the box for that Princess Di was murdered also tend to think she faked her death and is still alive somewhere. Well, she can't be both dead and alive, <laughs> right? Right. But there's kind of a larger global distrust of social institutions that we used to trust, Congress and doctors and the CDC and professors. And, you know, these are people we used to trust. And now we don't. Well, and, and we used to trust national publications to have editors that would allow certain information to be dispensed. Fact checking. Yeah. yeah. Editing. What? Yeah. Wow. <laughs> so... What do you think of the heterodoxy? Do you think that this new intellectual space of, you know, quote unquote, IDW people or you know, people, people like us, I guess, people, independent yeah. media, yeah. do you think that we're helping matters or sometimes I worry that we're just adding to the noise and making everything well, even more confusing? I don't know, Megan, but what else are you going to do? I mean, just, you know, let the other side take over. No, right. we have to have 
you know, just open conversations about everything. No censoriousness. Quit silencing people. Um, I mean, this is not this is what totalitarian regimes do. They they silence people. We can't do that. And the left is just as bad as the right now uh, on many fronts. And you know, it used to be the right, you know, uh, wanting to censor rock lyrics and Madonna's videos. Right. But the problem is we never took them seriously. That's the thing. Yes. And that Ooh, was always kind of a joke. And right. the, the left, at least among, you know, the, the, the left won the culture wars a long time ago. Right. So this right. is the difference. So, I mean, what is your answer when people say, well, how can you get so upset over the left when look at what the right is doing? Trump is on, on the march on his way back. And there are people, you know, running, a, counting votes that believe that mm. January 6th you know, mm-hmm. believe, believe that the election was stolen, et cetera, et cetera. Like, how do you answer that question? Well, of course, the facts still matter. The truth matters. And somebody like Liz Cheney who stands up for the truth, you know, should be lauded. We yes. should praise her, which I've been doing to the hilt, even though I don't agree with her on practically anything politically. But, you know, she, but she has a core value that Republicans you claim, used to claim that they believe in, you know, like the right. truth and and so forth. Uh, even the, like, I was tweeting yesterday about, you know, it'd be interesting if the GOP came out, somebody high up said something about Herschel Walker, like, well, we really want this guy to win because we want to win the, win the midterms. But you know what? He doesn't stand for our family values. We cannot back him anymore. We're out. And, you know, just imagine if somebody high up said that. It would be astonishing. I know. But, but wouldn't most people think, okay, they have some dignity. Uh, wow. Okay. <laughs> you would think so, but is that valued anymore? Well, this is the problem. I think, well, I'm sure it is, but not, it's, de- it's eroded. Let's say that it's eroded over the last, I don't know, 10 years, 15 years. I don't know how far back you want to go or where the problem started, but you know, let's say late aughts, something like that into the 2010s. I don't know, but yeah, it's a problem. So what should we do? Well, we got to, Keep pushing back. I mean, just stay on all the social media platforms and just oh, push and push and push. Really? <laughs> stay on Twitter? That's your answer? Oh. <laughs> I know. It doesn't sound good. I don't know what else to do, Megan. Just write books, you know, do your podcast. And so what, as opposed to what? You know, I mean, some people, don't, I have some scientist friends that they don't want anything to do with it. They just, they're not on social media. They don't go to committee meetings anymore in, in, in their university. They don't want to, they just duck, keep their head down. They just hoping not to, not to get canceled. And I understand that, but you know, that I think the more of us that speak up, you know, that the, the emperor has no clothes. I mean, yeah. the, the little boy that finally, you know, everybody knows he doesn't have any clothes, but they're afraid to say, and I, and, I do think we'll hit a tipping point, like in the Trump example, with the uh, rigged election. Nobody, no one, I think, in the higher echelon of the GOP ever believed the rigged election. I think the moment AG Barr said no fraud, that was it. But they were afraid to say anything because if Trump denounces you, you're out. Once that tipping point changes, once I don't know, DeSantis gets the primary, whoever, and he's out, that'll no one will no one will back him anymore. They won't talk about it. They'll say, Well, I never really believed that conspiracy theory in the first place, that kind of thing. I think it'll happen rapidly. Okay. All right. Let's hope so. So that could be wrong. <laughs> this is my last question. What do you talk to your students about? Are these undergraduates that you teach? Yes, my students at Chapman are first year foundation. They're first year students. It's, it's called the first year foundations uh, courses that I teach. One of those skepticism one hundred and one. They're right out of high school, so I get them fresh. They're pretty quiet. 
a little intimidated by being in college and, and so forth. And, you know, I'm just trying to teach them how to think about anything. Right. So like yesterday we had a, 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 a I give student TED, TED talks. They have to give a TED talk. So yesterday was on uh, pro pro choice, but I forced her to, to also in the middle of the presentation you know, weeks ago, said, you got to do your homework. You got to say, what, what are the best arguments on the pro-life position? turns out her mom was a pro-lifer. So she just asked her mom, what are your best arguments? Right. So she presented those and, and uh, it's basically, you know, you, you uh, how to think about any claims. And, and again, no certainty, no one, there's no capital T truths in science. And when you have an, an issue like abortion, where half the country thinks one way, and if you say, I don't know anybody who's pro-life, well, then you're not talking to very many people, right? I don't know anybody who voted for Trump. Well, <laughs> you're in a bubble, <laughs> right? And you probably do. They just don't want to tell you, right? So you got to adopt an attitude of, you know, kind of openness to dialogue and openness to change in your mind. And you know, those are the kind of core tenets I teach them. Well, Michael, thank you for all the work you've done over the years. and. Uh for thinking about all this stuff the way that you do and and for coming on the show. I've been wanting to talk with you for a while. So this Yeah, likewise. Great. Well, gosh, you make me sound old now. Oh, you've been doing this for so long. Oh no. No, no. <laughs> Usually I'm the I'm I'm on always hung I'm always hung up on my on my age. So since I since you're a little bit older than me, I have an opportunity to just Oh, uh, you're make, just make you're myself. you're just getting started. <laughs> oh boy. Yeah. Well, um and you and I are gonna be uh, in conversation in Chicago. Yeah, that'll in, be great. That'll weeks. be fun. So yeah, I think um, people listening now that will still be coming up October 29th. So we'll continue this conversation. And, and, and you're um, coming on my show. Yes. See, this is how it works. So we more just to talk come. to each other. <laughs> more to come. Thank you so much, Michael. All right, Megan. We'll talk again. Okay. okay. Bye-bye. Bye. That was my conversation with Michael Shermer. He is the founding publisher of Skeptic Magazine, the host of the podcast, The Michael Shermer Show, and the author most recently of Conspiracy, Why the Rational Believe the Irrational. Again, Michael and I will be in conversation at the Chicago Humanities Festival on Saturday, October 29th at 1 p.m. That will take place in the David Rubenstein Forum at the University of Chicago. For information and tickets, go to Chicago Humanities. Org. Would love to see you there. You've been listening to the Unspeakable Podcast, now on Substack at megandaum.substack.com. As I have said far too many times, it's also everywhere you normally get your podcasts. Please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts if you're so inclined. Please also check out my new-ish podcast. It's new. Started it this summer. A special place in hell that is on Substack and also everywhere else. I'll be back next week with another super nuanced guest. Thanks for listening. See you next time. <laughs>